KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, February 12th. Federal help with vaccine supply for community clinics. That story next. But first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials have reported more than 1,100 new COVID-19 infections on Thursday and 51 additional deaths. Positive test rates continue their slow decrease in the 14-day rolling average. It's now at 6.5 percent, the lowest it's been since the beginning of the year. Police in the San Francisco Bay Area are stepping up patrols and street presence ahead of tonight's Lunar New Year celebrations. The increase in patrols follows several violent attacks on elder Asians that were recorded on video and went viral. That's according to City News Service. City officials also visited Chinatowns in the Bay Area and Oakland this week to address safety concerns and to condemn the violence. Storms are rolling in for San Diego County today. We may see some light rain and some gusts in the deserts and mountains. It's a fast-moving storm system, though, so it's expected to be sunny and dry by tomorrow morning. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. San Diego wants to vaccinate 1.8 million residents by July, but vaccine supply is an ongoing challenge. And another challenge is getting the vaccine into neighborhoods hit hardest by the virus. Community clinics will be key in that effort. And this week, the Biden administration announced it will soon be sending vaccines directly to community clinics. Clinics like the one run by Family Health Centers of San Diego. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento brings us part one one of our ongoing series on the work being done to launch a new vaccination site. The neon duct tape Victoriano Diaz lays on the ground is not an arbitrary decision. Regular tape is going to get dirty. You're not going to be able to see it on this on this pavement. Most people start standing on it. So fluorescent tape seems to work well for us. It's a tip picked up after nearly a year of ushering socially distanced crowds through COVID-19 testing sites operated by Family Health Centers of San Diego. The nonprofit is the largest network of community clinics serving San Diegans. We're going to place a marker where we'll have a patient wait in line. The colorful adhesive will dot the parking lot outside its Logan Heights urgent care. The carefully spaced spots will safely direct up to 75 daily visitors to a COVID-19 vaccination. But like fluorescent adhesive, Diaz will have to make countless other logistical decisions before a syringe can even pierce skin. All kinds of small little idiosyncrasies that people 
aren't aware of that we need to plan for. So simple things like your vaccination card. Like who, where is this vaccination card going to be given to the person? And who's going to write it? And, and uh, is it going to happen at registration? Are they going to get it there? Are they going to get it at the vaccination area? The careful execution of a site is critical to reaching San Diego County's vaccination goal. Officials say every shot counts to vaccinate 1.8 million San Diegans by July. And community clinics are key to reaching underserved communities most affected by COVID-19. So this is an aerial shot of our Logan Heights Family Health Centers, which is our largest site that we're going to be providing co uh, uh, vaccinations. Half of the rectangle lot already holds a testing site that will have a different entrance than the vaccination side. The duct tape markers will weave vaccine recipients through four zones designed to control bottlenecks. So we want the patient to still have a good experience. We want them to just be standing here waiting. So you want them to have a seating area that they're going to wait if we do have to take a little bit more time with the patient. But Diaz is already planning for long lines stretching along the sidewalk. The clinic zip code has one of the highest rates of COVID-19 infections in the county, but it's also in an area that has the lowest vaccination rate. If you're here for 9 o'clock, this is your line. If you're here for 10 o'clock, this is your line. Kind of almost how you would look at it at... Um, at the airport. They also need to recruit and train the volunteers that will pre-screen, register, and guide patients through the orchestrated maze. It's not just about um, uh, creating vaccinations available for people, but what's their experience going through the process of getting vaccinations. And even though this operation is appointment-based, they must ensure sidewalk space for early birds like they saw for testing. And we would have 50 to 60 people that were here at 5 o'clock in the morning. They also have to develop a system to track the 15-minute observation period for dozens of patients with various vaccination times. It's very difficult. You would think 15-minute calculation is easier to do your head, but when you're doing 20 people, a 15-minute calculation constantly is very difficult. And after each eight-hour day, they have to find secure storage for all the supplies not in use. You know, there is talk about maybe putting a storage shed on site also to store non-medical uh, supplies because that's another consideration is how much equipment that we need to have there um, every day that we need to pull out that we normally wouldn't have at the clinic. Where are we going to stick it all? Each day, they'll reflect on the lessons learned because they have to make sure every single daily patient returns in a few weeks for their second dose. We're going to come up to the chair and we're going to say, introduce ourselves, thank them for taking the time and the courage to get their vaccine today. The extra focus on patient experience is what Diaz hopes will bring them back for round two. The site was set to launch early next week, but they received word on Thursday that the incoming vaccine supply wouldn't be enough. Family Health Centers hopes shipments from the Biden administration's new program will reach them the week after next. That story from KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. This is part of our ongoing coverage on the road to vaccinate 1.8 million San Diegans. In our next story, we'll dig into the on-site storage and handling of the vaccine. Coming up, San Diego County reveals a plan for reopening schools. We'll have that story next, along with more state and local news just after the break.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. The County Health Department and UC San Diego say they have a plan for safely reopening schools, a plan that's already proven effective. KPBS reporter John Carroll has more. Of all the ways COVID-19 has changed the way we live our lives, one of the most profound is certainly the education of our children. How best to ensure safety for students and staff as we return to in-person learning. In partnership with the county, we developed SAFSI, the Safer at School Early Alert Program. UC San Diego professor Rebecca Fielding-Miller says the idea is to find out whether someone at a given school is COVID positive. How are you today? That determination is made in a couple of ways. Staff swab surfaces where the virus would likely land. The other component you might call the ick factor. Laura Cohn with the Safer at School program explains. It turns out that people who are infected with COVID, even if they don't have symptoms, they shed pieces of the virus in their feces. This robot samples a school's wastewater every half hour. If the presence of COVID is detected, the school's students and staff are then asked to get a free test. The pilot program has been running for the last four months at 10 elementary schools around the county and two child care centers. Fielding Miller says her team is putting together a manual of how to implement the school testing program. So that we've made the mistakes um, so other schools don't have to. Right now, the limiting factor continues to remain uh, supply of vaccines. At the weekly county COVID COVID briefing, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher echoed Governor Newsom's comments from Wednesday about not getting enough vaccine from the federal government. For now, Fletcher says the county is focused on building out distribution sites, so when vaccines are available, they can administer as many doses as possible. He says all seniors in the county who want a vaccine will get one before moving on to other groups. At our teacher and school personnel sites, Uh, Those will be prioritized for schools that have an agreement to reopen. After that, Fletcher says the focus will move to vaccinating law enforcement, as well as agricultural and grocery workers. And that was KPBS's John Carroll. Nearly a year after pandemic restrictions first hit California businesses, there are still limits on many indoor operations. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman spoke to a local business owner who was able to talk one-on-one with the man making a lot of those decisions. People are being cautious and they're staying home. Um, it just hurts small businesses. Omar Ramirez and his family own Tacumbo Ice Cream, which after 16 years has grown to three locations in San Diego, including this one in Barrio Logan. So we kind of sell tradition. You know, it's a cultural thing. Um, we come from Mexico and, uh, the, you know, it's, it's traditional to go to uh, the plaza at night and, you know, have a drink or have a, a sundae. There was nothing really like that around here. Uh, when we started. But lately, business has not been good. Right now, lunchtime should be pretty busy. Tables full, you know, people walking in the door. But it's just not to that point yet. Ramirez has lost employees during the pandemic and says he and his dad now have to put in long hours. It's been pretty, pretty rough. It's been roller coaster, you know. It's they tell people they can go out and they tell them they can't. Just last week, Ramirez was awarded a $15,000 grant from the state. Then he got a call on Super Bowl Sunday saying the governor was coming the next day. He got lemonade, lemonade with chia. 
Newsom was in San Diego touring the Petco Park vaccination site before stopping in for the treat with County Supervisor Nora Vargas. Ramirez says he is not a political guy and the whole encounter was pretty quick, but he did have the governor's ear for a few minutes. He asked some questions of how we were doing and I told him, you know, we're having issues with employees, we're having issues with uh, low sales. Ramirez says Newsom told him he was hoping to increase the state's small business grant fund. So far, more than $500 million has been allocated to businesses impacted by the pandemic. Hard to keep small businesses when you're not making any sales, um, you know, but he, he said he's trying to work on, on something. The most recent round of applications for state grants just closed, and officials say business owners should be getting checks within a few days. It was pretty easy. It was a lot easier than the then the applications for the uh, federal, the federal grants. Locally, county supervisors voted this week to add an additional $30 million to the San Diego Small Business Relief Fund. That money won't be available until additional federal or state stimulus dollars come in. And that reporting from KPBS's Matt Hoffman. For years, public transit passengers in San Diego County have complained about overzealous security on buses and trolleys. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says a new report signals that reforms may be coming. The Metropolitan Transit System has been criticized for being too aggressive in its efforts to catch passengers who don't pay their fares. The security report presented to MTS board members Thursday made dozens of recommendations, including giving code compliance inspectors new uniforms that look less paramilitary. San Diego City Council member Sean Ila Rivera liked that idea. The word safety is thrown around a lot, and I think it's important for us to keep in mind the subjectivity of that feeling. What may make one person or family feel safe riding on transit could be triggering and even a repellent to, to others. Meanwhile, MTS is continuing a pilot program instituted last summer that allows passengers caught without a valid fare to avoid criminal citations. That story from KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. New details have emerged about an unethical liver study performed on San Diego veterans. iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano has the latest on a story they've been following for about two years now. The liver study took place at the San Diego VA from 2013 to 2018. Whistleblowers claim that VA researchers convinced veterans to get medically unnecessary biopsies, which could cause serious complications. New reports show the VA investigated those claims twice, but each time failed to corroborate them. In a letter to President Joe Biden this week, a federal watchdog agency called the VA's most recent investigation unreasonable. For me, um, it's not enough. That's Martina Buck, one of the whistleblowers. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be balanced. I need some sort of closure. For KPBS, I'm iNews Source reporter Jill Castellano. iNews Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. And for more background on the VA's research and the federal investigation, go to iNewsSource.org. All California public school students will have access to free meals under new legislation introduced by a Bay Area state senator. Cap Radio's Ed Fletcher reports. Berkeley Democrat Nancy Skinner says let's cut the red tape around school lunches. And why we would have the cafeterias at school trying to figure out which kid gets to eat and which kid doesn't, doesn't make sense. So I just call it, it's in the spirit of our schooling system now and our dedication to free education. 
She says her bill is a win-win for kids and California farmers. Skinner's bill would take advantage of federal funds, but by her admission, it may come with a cost. Skinner was not able to provide a final projection of the cost of the program or an estimate of the number of new students that will be served. The program extends an expanded school lunch offering created during the pandemic. The bill now heads for a committee vote. That was Cap Radio's Ed Fletcher reporting from Sacramento. GOP House Minority Leader and California Representative Kevin McCarthy claimed this week that raising the national minimum wage to $15 per hour could put nearly 4 million Americans out of work. PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols talked with CAP Radio anchor Mike Haggerty about that claim for this week's Can You Handle the Truth segment. Chris, where did McCarthy make the statement? Can you give us some context? Well, McCarthy made this claim about the wage hike destroying nearly 4 million jobs, both in a news release and on Twitter. He sent out these statements as Democrats in Congress are starting to consider the Raise the Wage Act. And that legislation, if approved, would boost the federal minimum wage from the current $7.25 per hour up to $15 per hour. And it would do that in stages over five years. Supporters say it would help lift many Americans out of poverty. And critics are worried that it will force businesses to lay off workers. Now, California is already on a path toward a $15 per hour minimum wage, right? That's correct. A few years ago, then-Governor Jerry Brown signed a law that moved California in that direction by next January $15 per hour will be the minimum wage at businesses with 26 or more employees. And right now, California's minimum wage is $14 per hour at those businesses. So what evidence did McCarthy point to when he made his claim about the nearly 4 million job losses from raising the wage? He includes a link in his press release to a new report published this week by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. And that CBO report does say the wage hike could lead to the loss of jobs, but nowhere near as many as McCarthy claimed. It placed what it calls the average estimate at a loss of 1.4 million workers, not the nearly 4 million workers that McCarthy described. And the report goes on to say that there's a smaller chance the loss could be up to 2.7 million positions, but again, still far less than McCarthy's number. So where did the congressman get his number? We reached out to his office and did not hear back, but the CBO pointed us to an older report it published from two years ago, and we found the high-end estimate of job losses in that older report does match with McCarthy's figure. So it looks like he cherry-picked the worst-case scenario but not even from a current report on the topic. In the end, then, how did you rate McCarthy's statement about this wage hike destroying nearly 4 million jobs? We rated McCarthy's claim as false. And that was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols speaking with anchor Mike Haggerty. You can read more about these fact checks at politifact.com California.
And for our arts segment today, KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando suggests trying something a little different for Valentine's Day this weekend. UC San Diego Craft Center is hosting Afrofuturism Dream Tank. It's an immersive experience of art, music, comics, science fact and fiction, history, and current events, all in celebration of Black History Month. Beth spoke with event facilitator Lawana Richmond about what to expect. Here's that interview. Lawana, a lot of people may have first discovered Afrofuturism when the Black Panther movie came out. So explain what that term means for people who may not be familiar with it. Oh, it means so many things. It can be as simple as speculative art, science fiction, comics, music that center the Black experience in the future, or it could be something that is more about using the imagination to imagine a better world in the future that not only centers, but also enhances the Black experience. And then, of course, we have Afrofuturists who are also Afro-pessimists who have looked at the current trajectory and without change, only see things getting worse. I tend to be more on the optimist side and encourage people to take ownership and agency to visualize and act and through the visualization, gain ownership of their narrative. And even though people may have only become aware of it at the time of Black Panther, this is something that has been around for decades. So kind of where are the origins for Afrofuturism? Ooh, it depends on who you ask. In 1994, Mark Derry published a collection of essays called Cyberculture Flame Wars. And the essay he chose to include was Black to the Future, where he actually introduced the term Afrofuturism, saying for lack of a better term. And in that one, it was very specific to cyberculture, science fiction, speculative arts, music, graphic arts. You know, there are some who look at um, literature and the earliest uh, science fiction work I've found so far written by a Black person centering the Black experience was written by W.B. Du Bois in the early, very early 20th century. To explore some of these things, you are organizing and facilitating an event on Sunday called Afrofuturism Dream Tank. So what can people expect from this? Well, they can expect at minimum to be entertained. We'll have music, art, poetry, and some, you know, a teeny bit of educational content, but not so much that I think it'll be burdensome. And opportunities for some self-reflection and inner work, either through art or journaling. Opportunity to engage in dialogues, to share their perspective and experiences. And towards the end, we'll talk about visions of the future and potential actions we can take that align with the desired future. Because sometimes we forget that um, when you want to make big change, sometimes you have to take small actions and you have to do them early. What is it about Afrofuturism that really excites you and makes you want to share it with other people? Sometimes things are really hard to, to talk about when you address them head on or you only can see what has happened. And if you're thinking about, dare I say it, radical change, sometimes you have to also be able to leverage the imagination. And Afrofuturism gives me the space within to have conversations with people um, to help them understand that really the world that we live in is the world that we all created together. And we can also together co-create a better society and a better world. And what do you hope people may take away from this event on Sunday? 
my hope is that people will have hope and inspiration, but also ownership because it's always easy to externalize change and think everything would be great if only those people over there or that person over there did X, Y, Z, when really there are also things that we as individuals can do or do collectively. Much of what builds the culture of an organization or a community or a society is really based on the individual people and how they choose to um, coexist. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about Afrofuturism. Well, thank you for having me. That was Lawana Richmond, an event facilitator for Afrofuturism Dream Tank, speaking with KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. Afrofuturism Dream Tank is a free event offered through UC San Diego Craft Center on the UCSD campus this Sunday at 1 p.m. And that's it for the podcast today. KPBS will be airing day four of the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. You can hear it live on KPBS 89.5 FM starting at 9 a.m. or watch it on KPBS 2 on television. You can also catch it streaming live online at kpbs.org. The trial is expected to continue over the weekend, but never fear. KPBS with NPR and PBS will be here all weekend to make sure you get the latest. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. And if you're celebrating, have a happy Lunar New Year. It's the Year of the Ox. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.